So the, the subject tonight is uh, the continuum. The continuum, we're talking about uh, the, uh, the way we traverse from a particular quality in ourselves and as the spiritual journey unfolds within us, we find uh, that this particular quality or whatever I'm starting off with uh, begins to evolve uh, into a different participation in life. <clears throat> And uh, so we've gone through a number of these continua, which is the plural of continuum. And uh, so we're going to continue those themes. What you'll find is that within each continuum, you'll find a, a hesitation, a point in which you think this is, you've reached the goal. Uh, what I call the false nirvana of any continuum. And it's where you are, uh, you just don't want to move. It's, it's what you really wanted. <laughs> it's you might not have consciously thought that that's where your goal lie, laid, laid, lies. But it nevertheless, uh, when you get there, you go, oh, this is as good as it gets. Like the beer commercial. And then there's a, uh, counter-influence that each continua arrives and that's where you see that your own efforts uh, can't solve the, uh, can't move you further uh, in the direction of liberation and that you have to surrender a certain will in order to move further. So we'll talk about that tonight in terms of this continuum and this continuum is from alienation to belonging. So we all, almost all of us, start out um, alienated, and by that I don't mean you're an alien, but in truth, we often are an alien to ourselves. We don't really know where we stand. We feel like we're a bystander to life. Have you ever had that feeling like you don't have full membership? <laughs> that uh, it's kind of pay-as-you-go. Uh, sort of like you're on an excursion through life and you're sort of viewing it from a third person. Well, that, that sense of alienation is, uh, is, it really is where we begin. We just don't, we don't have any, um, we don't have a, a sense of where we're located. We don't know where we are. We don't know what our life is really about. We have a the gift of many ideas given to us by others, but we, there's a disorientation to virtually every facet. Uh, we seek out, uh, you know, levels of certainty in ourselves uh, through knowledge, uh, through uh, possessions, which I'll talk about. But they don't really provide a ground for us. And we're left... Uh, in a kind of uh, free-floating drift that can be very uncomfortable. And it's one of the reasons that many people get involved in meditation. They may not state it as such, but really uh, it's because of this kind of confusion that most of us begin the journey with that compels us to meditate at all. Somehow meditation, and I hope to talk about this tonight, uh, provides a solution to that confusion, but we'll see. Now, 
It's all, this, this continuum of the need to belong uh, is almost a, a biological need in us. Uh, it's a, a, a sociological need, that's for sure. But it, there's, just a, there's a general sense, uh, which I think is actually a very authentic calling of the heart, that knows that we're missing something in our confusion that is truly there if we looked at it in the right way. Now, we may not be able to verbalize that, but we sense that there's a belonging in us that's much deeper and steadier than the shifting world that we, uh, that we perceive. And uh, so this the sense of trying to find our way into what we believe is more authentic form of belonging is a drive that sets us on our journey for most of our life. And we find it, as I mentioned, in many different ways. We try to do it intellectually. We try to establish ourselves as a fixed response to, to life. And that maybe in that fixed response, we can be fixed with that response so that we sense that there is something under our feet through that, uh, uh, that intellectual certainty. Uh, but it doesn't really, doesn't really work. So then we try other uh, forms or expressions of belonging by trying to find the right tribe for us. And that can be uh, patriotism. Now, I, I'm not judging any of these expressions of tribal formation, but I hope to show you that they're not true sense of belongings. So there's a, there can be a, a patriotic fervor that we feel, or, or we could have uh, a political uh, a political uh, party that we feel very uh, f focused upon, or religion uh, that feels benign, uh, something that we can get our arms around, and yet uh, if you look at the world's religion, we, can, we see a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, infighting and conflict. So uh, these, these forms of belonging uh, we, we, we try to amass or gather with people who are like-minded, <clears throat> who have the same intention in life, perhaps. It's really the basis of Sangha. Uh, and we try to establish ourselves through uh, seeing other people who are participating in the same thing and then claiming some reference to that, that group as our belonging. Oh, now I belong. I belong. I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Christian. I'm whatever I am. Uh, and so that sense of uh, trying to find a cause greater than ourselves, that's another expression of belonging, but all of those different groupings that I mentioned, political and otherwise, are attempts to, f to, to generate a sense of belonging from something that's bigger than just me. Because we sense that we aren't going to be able to find this sense of belonging in ourselves as just me. That there has to be some kind of massive threshold that we reach in which we can proclaim our tribe to be the one to belong to. And uh, so, uh, again, it just doesn't work conclusively for us. Uh, there, there's always that just that little hint that little whisper of being alienated within whatever block of friends that we 
that we uh, uh, ascribe to. I was watching a movie about Scientology. Uh, it's a documentary, actually. And uh, it's a fasc fascinating because what they try to do is to breed that sense of belonging so that that's the only thing in your life and that nothing else matters and that if anyone uh, turns against that particular religion, then your loyalty is to the religion, not to the person who turned away, even if that person who turned away is a family member. Uh, so it's an interesting documentary. You might want to see it. It's really a cult and meets the definition of cult. So uh, we have to be careful that this need for belonging doesn't grow into something that's uh, devilish, that in fact turns back and hurts us like a cult does. Uh, because the need is so unabating. It's such a, uh, a su there's such hunger in our need to belong that given a charismatic leader or a sense of, of uh, laws that, uh, or direction that you believe in strongly, uh, it can become the monster within. Now that certainly isn't what a Sangha is. hope you all realize that. We're looking for free thinkers here. We're looking for you to, to question yourself and to question everything about it, including the speaker. There's no one, nothing that's sacrosanct in Buddhism, including the Buddha. And to have that kind of ongoing questioning is healthy, and it keeps your sense of belonging growing proportional to your own realization, which is essential. So that's an important distinction to make. <clears throat> but let's just look at some of... Uh, because I, one of the things I began to notice when I was uh, thinking about this talk was uh, how when we have an affluent, when we're affluent, an affluent culture like our own, that we get our sense of belonging from the feeling tones of life, uh, pleasant or unpleasant. And the more affluent we are, the more we need to lean into the pleasant feelings of life for that sense of belonging, for that sense of, uh, of place in life. And so then we try to improve upon present feelings. Again, feelings are pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. So there's a kind of restlessness that comes in through the door of that particular form of belonging because feelings aren't trustworthy. They're not consistent. You know, we, you stay long enough in whatever posture you're in and you begin to uh, become restless. There's a, a change of feelings within that particular whatever it is that you're pursuing. And so uh, the affluent culture tries to buy its way out of that, tries to buy a better feeling. Or, but what it does is it leaves us deprived within the feelings at hand. Uh, we never really settle. And now I'm beginning to get into the, the sense of belonging here. So... As we begin, because we can't settle, there, there's an uprooting each moment uh, because of this restlessness that takes over. And so we, we, don't, we never really uh, feel like we can put our feet up and be content. There's no sense of, 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 uh, of uh, steadiness in us. 
So affluence uh, in relationship to, to feelings as a, a belonging is a very poor, it's very poor. I mean, it, it doesn't really require a lot of insight to see that if your belonging comes through pleasant tones and comforts, that it's not going to be very long-lasting. So again, you know, when I bring these topics up, my hope for each of us in the room here is to use them to really see, yeah, it doesn't, he's right. Which I think you'll find, but I want you to find it for yourself. I can't, I can't trust feelings for my sense of belonging. That's huge. Because most of our life is about uh, uh, translating the difficult into the easy. So, you know, so we buy whatever is necessary to make our lives smoother and more comfortable. Uh, and it's because we think what we will belong within that comfort range better than we do now. So that sense of that belonging sense continues to, to propel us. Or just the sense of material wealth. You know, you go, you, you you think that if you buy enough of the world <laughs> you'll, and own it, that that will provide that sense of home for you. And from where there you can lean comfortably back, back in leisure. <clears throat> but there, there's no ground to material, materials. There's, it's, it doesn't, it's, there's no ground, there's no root system. Why isn't there any root system? because the identification of what it is is coming from us. Where's the root system when we're projecting what something is onto itself and then buying it for a sense of steadiness within ourselves? Doesn't make sense. And in fact, again, we have to sh we have to prove that to ourselves. We have to say, well, what does he mean that there's no root system, that there's not it, that nothing is intrinsically what it appears to be. It's only what my mind says it is. What do you think that something that's this shape is a bell? No, something this shape is something this shape. That's all. So you get a you get a sense that you know no matter what purchasing power we have uh, and what wealth we might accrue, it's not going to provide a satisfaction to this this restless spirit we have where we're constantly looking for some place uh, to belong. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, and most of us as children did this, I'm sure, you know, spun around and around and around and then tried to walk straight. Well, you don't do a very good job of it like that. It's better uh, not to have a steady ground under your feet rather than one that's where you're dizzy and have a compass with you. And now you can begin to find your way straight towards wherever it is that you're going. But when you're dizzy, you're not going to be able to point yourself in any kind of linear way. And most of us, ha that's the frame of reference that we have. It's kind of dizzy. We don't know. We think we know. Maybe through wealth or accumulation of material goods or our sense of tribes that we can find ourselves, we can find our steadiness, but that's just spinning us around and making us more dizzy. Where do we, where's the ground under our feet? You see, now we're looking at the continuum here. 
right? So we're just getting going on this thing. But you can see the problem, and, and most of us really want some practical solution to get out of this dizziness. We want to buy our way out, if we could, because we, most of us have the sufficient funds to be able to do that. But it doesn't work. So what's, what is this, where is this pulling us? You see, where is the spiritual journey taking us? Uh, when we aren't able to luxuriate in the only way that our culture has ever taught us to do just that. So some of us uh, find our way, I don't really know how, because uh, it doesn't obviously point to belonging, but some of us find our way to mindfulness. And mindfulness, suddenly when we are doing it, when we actually have practiced, <clears throat> not just theoretical, but actually practiced, suddenly it starts making sense in terms of belonging. Why? Immediately we have a ground under our feet. I can feel that. I know where I am for the first time in my life. Now that's not a small thing. We may still complain about where we are because it's not warm enough or satisfying enough. Uh, it's not comfortable enough. But at least we have some steadying point for ourselves. Some tether on which if we, if we address it in, in proper orientation, we sense that there could be a deep sense of belonging there. Now that's not the only aspect that's a part of the need to belong. The other component that moves along with mindfulness is ethical conduct. Because again, if you want to be dizzy and just spinning out, be unethical. That's the surest way to, to twirl yourself into a mess. Because the paranoia the th will he or she find out the sense of self being so egoically uh, determined uh, the proportion of of what's important to you as opposed to what's everyone else's proportionality all of that that that's that's massively confusing to to any sense of acknowledging where we are the turf under our feet so you we begin to realize that. We think, okay, so this, this uh, accompanying the steadiness of my feet, and this is really missed uh, most frequently in secular mindfulness. That this is not an isolation. This isn't just about being aware of what you're doing. That's not really going to help you belong. There's an accompanying spirit, accompanying a steadiness of character, <clears throat> of honesty, of integrity, that keeps you from, from furtively looking over your shoulder to see who's, if you're about ready to get caught in your lie. And that, that's, that's extraordinarily important. Because now you, you can honor where you are rather than wishing you weren't here because you're about ready to, to be exposed. 
And so, it's, so mindfulness coupled with ethical conduct and the other seven steps uh, equally important, but I don't have time to go into them. The, the mindfulness, okay, so, so mindfulness suddenly allows us to have an orientation. It's our first GPS indication. It's the first sign that we have a legitimate place to be on the earth. You see, oh, you see all before we felt illegitimate. That's why we never felt we had full membership in life. But suddenly, we land. And what comes with ethical conduct is I don't have to apologize for where I land. It doesn't mean I don't listen to feedback. You listen to it in the way you can, but there's really no apology because your intentions were never to harm. That comes also with mindfulness and the Eightfold Path. And so that orientation to basic goodness. Not morality. I'm not, a, I'm not uh, a supporter of morality. Morality is very divisive. It looks at the world as sin and sinner, sinner and saint. It looks at the world in terms of black and white issues. And those very shadows of black and white become an interior response to exterior situations. And it doesn't do anything but bind you further into your own confusion. So that's not a very good sense of, of, of orientation to our belonging. But basic goodness, where you just, your heart just, you don't feel like hurting someone anymore. And that, as I've said many times, is the first indication that the practice has really got you cellularly. You're no longer interested in harming. And you're no longer interested in harming yourself either. It goes both ways. And now there's a, now there's a, a feeling of, of orientation that isn't just the ground under your feet, but a way of perceiving life. That life is about healing. It's about coming together. Now, so listen to the words, you see. As we heal, as we share our hearts, as we gather in formation called a sangha, as we steady ourselves under the feet, guess what happens? We can now perceive from a collective, not from an individual. We see ourselves here and we acknowledge and welcome everyone else where they stand. And this is just the beginning of the path. We're only an inch on the continuum. But already there is light. There is room and air to breathe. And though we don't often speak about it, it's the sense of belonging that really nourishes us. And that sense of belonging now holds the characteristic of my whole life going forward. 
And so here, here, this is meaningful. I feel like I have a root system. I feel like I have a home. I feel like there's an anchor to what? To the earth. And so my affections are not just to my own species, but to the very thing that supports me step after step. And may I say, uh, uh, when you're doing walking meditation or when you're just walking, a beautiful mantra to say to yourself as you feel the earth under your feet, you say, oh, home. I am home. I am here. I am home. I am here. I am home. Perhaps you can feel that now. See, you don't, there's no excuse. You don't need a rationale. You never need a rationale for being wherever you are. You never need to... It's your mind's confusion that brings up a doubt. Well, should I be somebody else? Does he like me? What am I doing here? I don't understand what he's saying. Uh, maybe I should... All of that has nothing to do with your basic home, which is planted, which is real, which is physical, which is where we abide. Why do we question that? And certainly, why do we question that from the springboard of confusion? Has this thing ever oriented you in a belonging way? Are you going to find it here? Well, I haven't. So let me find it. Let me find it with assurance. You see. And somebody then says, oh, uh, I, you were the thief. And I, no, I didn't steal. No, you did. Well, then you get carted away to jail and you spend five years in jail and you didn't do it. And you belong every moment you're in jail. Huh? You don't go, oh my God, what am I doing here? I should, I'm innocent. Don't, I'm innocent. No, you can say that. Hope your lawyer gets you out. But that's where you are. You belong there. I belong in jail. Yes, you belong in jail. Do you see? No confusion. Again, I invite us to realize this fact. So when you're walking around, you know, and in the basic chattering of your head I'm at home with each step I take I am here I'm at home and some of the lessons of mindfulness are so beautifully in line with that let me just move forward a little bit because wherever we are is the right time in the right place so I'm going to throw in time in a moment because it's exactly where we are and we keep thinking of time as something that we have to get to like eight, at seven o'clock I've got to be at Sims because we start sitting right well let me reframe this seven o'clock is where you are when the clock strikes seven that's on the freeway stuck in traffic that's the right time that's the right place we have to, we have to see, cease and desist this pressure 
that we feel in our life this from the confusion of not belonging. You know, I've got to hurry. I've got to, you don't have to do anything. Start off as early as you need to to get to where you need to be. And if you don't get there on time, then you don't get there on time. You're waiting for a bus. And you get to the bus stop just as the bus is leaving. And now you have to waste your time for 20 minutes until the next bus comes. No. Waiting for the bus is as good as being on the bus. What's wrong with it? It's exactly the same opening. It's exactly the same possibility. The same earth is under your feet. And to, re to realize that fact. You see, we can cut this we can cut this nonsense. We can, we can cut it off very quickly. If we're willing to go against the conventional, conventional wisdom that waiting in the bus is a bore, waiting for the bus is a bore and a waste of time. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the way we use time in this culture is we, is we fracture it. You know, the, <clears throat> this is my time to be with my family. And this is my time to work. Now, when I'm working, I don't want my family to come in and bother me. And this is my time for myself. This is personal time. And this is my time to sleep. And this is my meditation time. And so we've boxed ourselves in so that there's no flow or movement. And if any of those cross over, then there's hell to pay, right? Like a mother, once in an interview, she said to me, um, she said, I, I can't sit. My two-year-old or three-year-old daughter comes in when I'm sitting and, and wants to play. And so I, I just can't sit with a daughter. I said, well, you know, get, uh, give her up for adoption. <laughs> Why don't we just cut to the chase? That, if you can't, you know. And of course, that wasn't, that wasn't going to be done. But the, the, the point is that you're sitting, and then your daughter comes in. And now that's it. Now you're, you, you can't sit, not in the formal sitting, but the relationship of the movement of being present with your daughter in whatever way that seems appropriate, is the perfect way to respond. Right? Because that's the time and place. It doesn't line up in accordance to our expectations, people. Nothing in life meets our expectations, not to the perfection that we want it to. And we either give that up and agree to the imperfection that's here or we never find our place in belonging. So belonging has nothing to do with perfectionism. That's the pursuit of good feelings. It is not the pursuit of the ground under your feet. The ground over your feet may be cold. The room may be too warm. The lights too whatever. It doesn't at all disturb the sense of belonging.
This sense of belonging is much greater than the conditions of life that are imposed upon us. If we haven't seen that, then we'll keep trying to find our belonging within those conditions. And if there's one thing that all of us have repetitively heard is that conditions don't last. You can't count on them. And that sense of every moment then is equal. The time waiting for the bus and the time on the bus and the time at work and the time... Di- it's, they're all equal. It's equal. When they are n- not equal, you will not find your sense of root- rootedness. You won't f- because you, don't, you won't know where you are. The mind, in its craziness, will supplant the perfection of your stance. The perfection of your position. I mean, in that beautiful mudra of the Buddha touching the earth, he's saying, this is it. I don't, I don't care. You mind, you can doubt all you want, but here I am, and this is what I'm doing, and that's it. That was a statement of belonging. There's no misfit here. And as we begin to journey more deeply into the mind and body experience, we find our belonging with our bodies, in our bodies, not just the touch of our body on the earth, but in the body itself. That object which we have so discarded because of the scar tissue and the emotions it contains, the untrustworthiness of it. It gets old. It hurts. It's unreliably there. This is where we settle. Not from the perfection that it will never be, but the fact that this is the only, only place that we can be. And we say, that's it then. That's it there. 68 years old. Whatever. That's it. And here, this is the body's body. Now, the mind as the mind. You see, now this is what's been driving the whole thing insane. How can I have any ownership, any willingness to abide in this thing when all it does is throw me off? It's a fantasy machine. Because we begin to understand it as just that. And the understanding of what we can and cannot trust truly leads to belonging. So we have some idea about someone who we have no idea is true or not and you just stop the thinking because it's not true. It has no reflection on the truth whatsoever. I know no more about what you're thinking of me despite your stares or your grimaces or your frowns or your smiles. And I give that up. I don't reference myself from your mind and therefore I don't reference myself from my own. What does he think of me? What is, what is he going to, oh my, uh, it doesn't matter. 
doesn't matter what I think of you. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you. It's none of your business what people think of you. Now, you see how you... Suddenly, this thing is opening up now. Belonging is no, it's not a shallow thing, but beginning to grow in volume, in ferocity. Not ferocity in aggression, but ferocity in confidence, in assurance. Join me. Don't let it be theoretical in your life. Challenge that which is ungrounded by referencing that which is grounded. Awareness. How can I say awareness? Because mindfulness moves out as we become more and more in line with our own belonging. Mindfulness begins to be a shared experience, not a self-induced experience. It becomes bigger than the sense of me. And here, I can look around and feel the commonality of our circumstances, of our heritage, of our species. But more than that, and as awareness grows in its sense of affirmation, because what we see, we can trust. What we believe, we cannot trust. And so from awareness, seeing allows us to trust the sense of connectedness. And lo and behold, I'm beginning to uncover that which I've lost sight of since birth. A sense that there is more to me than me. There's something larger, something more connected here than I have always believed myself to be in isolation. And I can sense it. And then as awareness grows, The sense of belonging grows with the awareness. So it's not limited to my body or to my particular location because no longer am I isolated in my view. It's an interconnected world, an interconnected vision. And therefore all people belong. And when I think in isolated terms, I can't find my own belonging. But when I relax those terms and feel the disposition of all of us being together in unity, then my belonging doesn't stay isolatedly within me. And with belonging comes abundance. You see? Belonging is abundant. When I'm in myself, it's like I want my share. Okay, so he's got more than I. That's the way the mind equivocates. 
within its isolated field. But when, it ha when, there's a, when there's a different perception, perceptual field, it doesn't think like that. That's, it's just that's not the logic of the perception. The perception sees abundance. Well, there's plenty. Which doesn't mean that everyone gets exactly the same amount. It's not that. It's about the way we see, not the quantity of what we see. It's very simple. Belonging never was outside. It wasn't within our discovery. We don't have to go far to seek it out. It wasn't in terms of purchase power or accumulation. It wasn't in terms of gathering like-minded people around me. It wasn't then in terms of association. It wasn't even in terms of family. Certainly wasn't country. See, it makes you independent of all these things, yet at the same time totally bound with them all. But not dependent on that for the sense of belonging. And it started, the continuum started with mindfulness. And then it reached a certain purity of sensitivity, of feeling the sense of belonging, and that's the false nirvana that says, this is as good as it gets. Wow, my heart is open. I love everybody. I appreciate myself for the first time. Why would I ever want anything but this? Because it's circumstantial still. With a different mood, there's a different outlook. And therefore, it's a false nirvana, not the true one. And what we realize is that the counter-influence is that we want to stay within that false nirvana when we realize that to take the next step is to step out of ourselves, of our individuation, of our identification with our individuation, and join the whole. And that is full membership. Okay, all, thank you. Can we just sit for a minute or two? We also, as we sit, we realize that belonging is appropriate in the midst of our life. It doesn't require special circumstances or special environments. You don't have to belong only on retreat. In fact, it's the, the most important thing is to find it where you are. independent of all persuasions. So this is your decision on whether to belong or not.
Okay, if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to entertain them if I can. <coughs> Right. Right. No, no, I, 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 I understand. She says that belonging, maybe the word itself is a little bit misleading and that the way we usually think of it is something that we are uh, socially connected to or um, the comfortable surround of it all or something like that. And uh, I think that's how we begin the journey of seeking it. Uh, but what I was trying to show tonight was that uh, you can't find it in the conventional wisdom of what it means to belong. To me, the b belonging is, uh, is more easily summarized as uh, stillness, not moving, a contentment perhaps, where there's just n you're not looking outside for anything. There's, no, there's nothing that the outside can can offer to increase the sense of steady contentment that's there, right? And so you, we usually have to go through all of the conventional wisdom of how to belong, like affluence or whatever it is, because those are ways that we're seeking a greater sense of contentment in ourselves. So I'm using the word belonging not so much in its conventional meaning but as a way to get a sense of that we do belong. <laughs> I, I mean, that it's, a, it's an existential fact is that there's, nothing, there's no way for us not to belong. We are part. We are. And that, the affirmation of that or the realization of that is often often comes towards the uh, as the continuum uh, continues on you reach a point where you're not willing to rearrange your life uh, for the contentment you seek you want to find that contentment despite conditions and that's what allows us to sit steady in the fact of whatever it is, whatever those conditions might be. Interpersonal conflict? 
Well, I mean, if you're in interpersonal conflict, then you've already lost that sense of belonging, quite likely, because it becomes a, an, an idea against an idea, you know, it's a philosophy against a philosophy, or or reaction against reaction. And if you're embedded so much that that conflict is manifesting, then you've lost your belonging already. So you have to find a different way to approach that relationship so that it's not conflictual or so that you can hold the conflict differently so that you know where you're sitting as, as you're speaking to that person, that you know, you know, you know your location, you know your, your body and you give yourself your energy over to that rather than to meeting his or her objection with your own, you see? It just depends on where you want to force the issue. Uh, and it's always a question like that. Belonging is always a question of where you want to, where you want to affirm. What do, you, what do you want to affirm? You want to affirm your body's position or do you want to affirm the idea that, that you're in conflict with, you see? That's why I say when you're walking, if you do this often enough, you know, I'm at home, I am here, I'm at home. This is Thich Nhat Hanh, actually. I'm here, I'm at home. I've arrived, I'm at home. I have arrived with this step. I'm at home with this step. That, those affirmations begin to sink into the body so that when you're seated, you've arrived and are at home. And when you're talking, you've arrived and are at home. When you're sleeping, when you're eating, all of it. You've arrived. You're not waiting for the next event in order to feel like it's your you belong. You see. And it really does need a repetition of purpose and intention in order to establish that fact again and again. Because that's not where the mind the mind doesn't think like that. It thinks abstractly. Where it's going is where it needs to be in order to belong. It thinks futuristically. It thinks circumstantially. And if you listen to that, you'll never find your belonging. But if you tune into the body, then the body immediately knows its location. These are the coordinates. It can find you if you're on the top of Mount Rainier. Those are your coordinates. That's it. Okay, again, right, no, no, I got it. Yeah, it makes sense. So the question is, uh, how, do you, how do you assimilate belonging into free will or making decisions and, uh, is that right? And intention. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, w well, first of all, I, I would go to intention because it's one of my favorite words. And I would find what your life is really, what you really want your life to be about. Not momentarily, those are desires, or, but really deeply. For me, it's uh, liberation. Now, uh, l let us say that that is yours as well. I don't know, but I'll just... Then, 
whatever it is that comes up to meet that in objection is secondary to the fact that you're going to meet it with a liberating mind. So uh, instead of quarreling with the person, you find a way to steady your body and your steady your position, hold your ground in a um, liberated man, man, uh, uh, manner and deal with the issue that's coming at you even though in the moment there's a desire, I wouldn't call it an intention, a desire to get over this particular squabble, you realize that you have to go through this difficulty, but to do so means that you'll hold on to your liberation as the, your main intention and not to win the argument, you see. So as long as the priorities are set, as to the thing that's most meaningful, you lead with the thing that's most meaningful in your life, then everything else will be done within that frame of reference. No, it's not an abstract thought. Liberation is not an abstract thought. If it is, then it, it's right now. What's the most liberated I could be right now? Let's put it that way. Right? That's not an abstract thought. It's, first, I've got to find my body in order to even know that I exist. I've got it. Okay, so then let's just keep moving it in that direction. All right. So free will, I mean, if you think you have free will, use it. Until you see that you don't, and then there will be another course for you to take. That will be your counter-influence. But for if, you, if you think you can do it, then use it in, is a, within alignment of your wise intention. It's not in conflict. In fact, most of us, for most of the journey, feel we do have free will. Feel that we can make our decisions and feel like I've got to make a livelihood. Okay, but within the liberating quality of that decision, What's the best livelihood? I don't want to sell drugs. Uh, I don't want to sell tobacco. I don't know. I mean, whatever, it, whatever you see as being objectionable as a way of life, you don't do it. And that's using your liberation as the motivation for your decision-making. You see? So that's a, and yet you're, you're making decisions, free will, all of that. So we stay within our own ground. But you lose the ground, you lose everything. So, um, as you were saying, you know, belonging, uh, acceptance of conditions, whatever is happening is just the way it's supposed to be, and it's a perfect situation. But okay. what if you have some discontent with the conditions where you see people suffering or they have this guilt? Okay, so the question is, how do you align the discontent that the world is filled with, people being hungry, inequality, all of that, with this sense of, of being completely grounded and belonging at the same time? You see, okay, th that's a very important question because we usually try to operate from the mental point of reference of how awful these people and what they need from us and how important it is to... And so there's a division, often a pitying division, between me who has it and these people I'm serving who don't. And that doesn't really, that doesn't, that really doesn't uplift either you or the other person. So if you know, if you ever have met somebody who has a steadiness in themselves, you get served through that steadiness. And they may be 
handing out meal tickets or doing something that their heart feels in alignment with doing. But it doesn't make much of a difference what they're doing because you still get healed in some way just through, just through the interaction with that steadiness. And I think the steadiness is a gift that we, we don't realize its worth and its influence. I can remember, I was very young in my practice and I was hungry. And so I was on a bus uh, or train or something. And the conductor or the person who was taking my ticket, like I just went, whoa, man, this is worth the whole bus ride just to be within this. I mean, he, the way he held his attention on me as I was giving him my ticket validated everything that was in me. His attention validated me. I, I can't explain what that meant except that that's what, that's what it And I, I just went, whoa, it just took, took me into a completely different frame of reference. We don't see that that's a value in the world, but believe me, it certainly is. And then we do whatever our heart's yearning to do because we see the pain and we, want peop we don't want people to be in pain. So we do whatever is we're called to do to try to solve that problem of, of pain and inequality. But we never lose the center because the center is also a gift. And the meal ticket's a gift, but the center is a greater gift. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So is there a greater gift than that? And is there a greater home than that? Okay, we're going to have announcements now. Please uh, stay through them if you would. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.